Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here on WERA 96.7 FM. Today in the studio, we're speaking with Eric Kozlik, who is the CEO of Modern Bar Cart. They're a DC-based cocktail and spirits company. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks, George. Excited to be here. Eric, uh, so I, I know your company from Embitterment, DC. Sure. And uh, I, I think it's great where mixology is going and the modern craft cocktail movement. Talk to me about how you became part of this. Tell me about how you started Modern Bar Cart, your website, your podcast, the events that you do, and the products you offer. Sure. So Modern Bar Cart is very much a second iteration of a company that we started back in 2015. Uh, we were originally just embitterment bitters. We were focused on creating these really high-quality craft cocktail bitters, and it, it all started out just kind of gradually. Um, my co-founder Ethan Hall and I were living in an apartment together in D.C., and as you kind of do after you graduate from college, you, you learn to drink like a, an adult. And so we started tinkering around in the kitchen. We're both kind of handy in the kitchen. And we eventually got our homemade cocktail bitters to a point where we were kind of proud of them. We were giving them as Christmas gifts and stuff like that. And we kind of turned to each other and said, we could probably sell these. And it was just a very gradual process of he filed some paperwork with Washington, D.C., and I made a website. Then we set some meetings with Union Kitchen, which is our manufacturing facility and, and one of our closest partners. And before we knew it, we had a company. And then for the ensuing two years after that, we just kind of on nights and weekends were putting together these cocktail bitters flavors. We were learning the art and the science of it. Um, there's a, a lot of interesting effects when you put different types of things into alcohol and extract their flavors. Uh, things act very differently. And so none of us having a chemistry background, we just did a lot of discovery and trial and error, uh, sort of the same way that your family's, uh, you know, chicken soup recipe that's passed down over generations was developed, a lot of trial and error. And we developed these four great cocktail bitters flavors, aromatic, orange, lavender, and chocolate. And we started bringing those to, to retailers and getting feedback from those folks. And the interesting thing about cocktail bitters is they kind of sit at the nexus of a bunch of different sales streams. So we worked with distillers selling them in their tasting rooms. We work with a lot of specialty retailers. We work with some people who might be considered more on the grocery side of things. And, and all these different customers had different needs, different feedback, different ways that they wanted to merchandise the product. So it was a really interesting way for us to gather information and improve our products. We improved the packaging. We improved just the manufacturing, the way that we made them. And then around about a year and a half ago, it just became clear that this was something that we couldn't really handle overnights and weekends any longer. It was growing too big. We had too many customers and we were stretched a little thin on the side hustle side of things. We we all still had day jobs. So at that point, I kind of took the plunge. I, I quit my day job. And pretty immediately after that, it became clear that a single line of cocktail bitters wasn't a good enough concept. 
if we wanted to remain competitive and continue to grow the way that we have been. So that's where modern bar cart came from. And modern bar cart is sort of, instead of a, just a line of products, it's what we call a cocktail platform. And that means a number of things. One, it means that we're kind of launching some new products. We immediately then launched another, another line of cocktail bitters, our Embitterment Heritage Collection, which is kind of a, a more sophisticated style of product. And we're also developing some syrups that uh, we're hoping to, to push out very soon. Um, we are doing some sets and packs of things for people to, uh, to give as gifts. And we're also um, trying to move a little bit more into some non-consumables. So in the next month, we're launching some cocktail-scented soaps and a tasting journal for spirits and cocktails. So you've really diversified your product line from the initial start of just starting out with the bitters. Yes. And uh, what's interesting to me now, too, is you started off at Union Kitchen. And Union Kitchen, for those that don't know, is almost like a co-working space for people that are in the restaurant industry or in the food industry that want to create products in a shared space so they don't have to have their own kitchen. They can basically share a lot of the equipment in there. Talk to me about your experience working in Union Kitchen. Yeah, so Union Kitchen has actually grown up quite a bit since we joined them uh, as as a, you know, a client. And so they're in a much bigger facility now than they originally were. It's a, it's a place that's frequented by a, a very wide variety of people in the food industry. So everything from food trucks and caterers to people who would be in the consumer packaged goods space like me, uh, there's just a, a huge diversity of people who are using that space. So they got a much larger facility. Um, there's a, there's a, an organically certified room that we use. Uh, we were able to get our, our, one of our lines of bitters certified organic. Uh, so that was really helpful uh, from them as a partner. And they also launched something uh, that they call their accelerator program. And, and we were in the first cohort in that accelerator. And they've been really helpful in professionalizing us and, and helping us to get a little bit more serious about things like unit economics and workflow and just all those little things that a company that's actually putting out products really needs to be thinking about if they want to succeed at scale. And it, what's interesting is you've also, you know, got the distribution on like early on as part of what you've done and and basically had to scale it from there. So when you were working with that distribution process, was it basically just trying to partner up with as many local places at, at first and then try to expand from there? Or what was your strategy? Uh, it was a, a complete mixed bag, to be honest. Uh, so we have an actual liquor distributor that, that carries the cocktail bitters uh, in D.C., Maryland and Delaware, and they service mostly on-premise accounts, so bars and restaurants. And then... Union Kitchen also has a distribution service that kind of hits a bunch of those stores that are kind of sitting at the nexus of grocery and specialty retail here in the D.C. area. So um, a lot of the specialty stop, uh, shops care, uh, carry us through Union Kitchen distribution. And then when it comes to distillers and um, some of the larger accounts that we have, it's self-distributed. So we'll find a way to get our products to people. Um, a lot of these accounts are just really great opportunities for us to maintain relationships with some of these people who really helped us grow. So um, we still do service a lot of our accounts in person. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting. And, and e-commerce obviously is is our, our latest distribution model. And that's something that we're putting a lot more focus on these days. 
Talk to me about the cocktail renaissance that's happened, because you kind of came out at around the same time that the cocktail renaissance was going on. Now we see mixology and mixologists at bars across the world, and, and this wasn't something that people really called bartenders, you know, a couple decades ago. What what happened here? What What's the transformation in the industry? The cocktail renaissance is one of my favorite topics to speak about. Um, it basically, for, for people who aren't familiar with what it is, it's this kind of rebirth of classical cocktails, as well as an interest in further innovating with what cocktails are and what they can be. So it started in the late 90s with a bunch of people kind of digging through old cocktail books and resurrecting classics like the Martinez, like the Old Fashioned. And you just saw a lot more interest in how to create really excellent classic cocktails. And then after it started to gain a little bit of traction, people started playing around with other things like presentation, how to, you know, do things at scale better, I guess, at some of these more high volume cocktail bars. And so the result is that great craft cocktails are more accessible than they've ever been if you go to a nice cocktail bar. And there's also kind of more recently been a lot more people who've been trying to do it at home, which is kind of where, where modern bar cart comes in. So we are really riding the coattails of these great technicians and thinkers who were able to scale amazing cocktails out at bars. And we're trying to sort of take the lessons that they can give us and teach it to people who want to do it better at home. Uh, so that's why on the Modern Bar Cart podcast, which is our weekly home bartending show, we end up interviewing a lot of these bartenders, distillers, and just other industry experts who can somewhat distill that information down into a usable form for people who just want to come home after work and put together a really delicious cocktail that they're proud of and that really stimulates their imagination. So your opinion is really that the revolution is going to happen with people learning to create their own cocktails at home. And and I think a lot of that comes down to just, you know, basically learning that there's more variety than just beer and wine, right? Sure. Um, a couple thoughts on that. One, I think there's a big difference between a renaissance and a revolution. This is this is a very strong opinion that I have. It's it's also maybe a little bit polemical, but I remember when I was first starting to get into cocktail bitters, Derek Brown, who's responsible for some of the best bars in Washington D.C. and who's done a tremendous amount of work and just I have a lot of respect for him. I was I was reading this article featured in one of these, you know, foodie publications and he said this cocktail renaissance or revolution or whatever you want to call it. And at the time, I was finishing up my Master's of Fine Art degree in poetry. I had a lot of time and care spent on words. And I was like, how can this guy who's doing all this amazing work not really care about what it's called? And so that got me thinking a little bit more about the differences between renaissances and revolutions. And if you look at it in a kind of a historical concept, uh, context, it becomes clear that renaissances happen at the very highest levels of society and revolutions happen at all levels of society. And so really what that boils down to is access. So if we want to call something a cocktail revolution, then it can't just be happening in these really premium bars at places that charge a lot of money for what they do. It's great that it started there, but I think that we have a real opportunity to take it you know, to the streets, so to speak, and, and, and have better cocktails in the home. 
So so that's my thought on on the the revolution versus renaissance kind of thing. Thanks for making that distinction because I think there is something to the fact that people, you know, they have the confidence to make something at home knowing that they can learn the craft themselves and I I think that's the major difference. So uh you're not of the opinion that, you know, these speakeasies and and bars that have opened up that, you know, specialize on craft cocktails aren't necessarily a bad thing, but they're all they're all kind of part of the renaissance, right? Right. Yeah. Everybody's involved. In, and I think um, I, I was interviewing someone named Maggie Hoffman, who's a, who's a cocktail author. She's, she's really talented and, and does amazing work. And one of the things that she said on the podcast was that the conversations and things that are happening in amazing cocktail bars and the things that are happening in the home with home bartenders couldn't be more different today. And I don't think that's necessarily a criticism, but I, I think it, it definitely shows that there's room for knowledge to pass from from one place to the other and, and for home bartenders to start getting in conversations with people who are technicians and who are really amazing thought leaders in cocktails. So that's what we're kind of trying to do with the podcast. Education has always been a really important part of what we do. Uh, the classic example would be when we launched Embitterment, we did it at uh, an event in, I believe, 2015 called DC Veg Fest, and we thought we were just so smart launching our bitters line at this event filled with vegans and people who really care about what they are putting in their body, people who know about things like essential oils, and we still spent the entire time just educating people and explaining what cocktail bitters are. So from the very beginning, education has been huge for us, and so I think in this new, more mature version of the company. Uh, I'm I'm really glad that we doubled down on that educational um, initiative. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it too. The education has to come primary before you develop the consumer base, so that they really can kind of pass on, have that knowledge transfer whenever it comes to making drinks for their friends at like a home party or something. So now you've got different flavors. You've got liquid gold. You've got Japanese bitters, sarsaparilla. Tiki bitters, uh, orange, lavender, chocolate, aromatic bitters. How do you come up with the recipes for these flavors? So the first two flavors that we developed were aromatic and orange because those are the two flavors that are called for by name in most classic cocktails. So we wanted to be able to present people with use cases. So those are the ones that we developed first. We developed those collaboratively, Ethan and I. And then I developed lavender and our other business partner, Russell, developed chocolate. So we kind of had some little side projects going on. And, and the number four was just a really good kind of lineup for us to have. So we kind of said, OK, this is our this is our kind of keystone flagship line. And then we launched the uh, Heritage Collection about a year ago, maybe in January. So a little less than a year ago. And these are flavors that took me about a year to develop when I was rebranding Modern Bar Cart. So I still wanted to be very engaged with flavor, with the thing that we do, even though I was spending a lot of time on things like the rebrand, design, logo stuff, packaging. Um, so the way that you develop a cocktail bitters flavor is you come up with a formulation that you think is going to highlight the flavors that you want to put out there. And then you put down kind of like two two little test batches and then you wait for it to extract and then you test it and you identify what things you like and what things you don't like and then you go for another iteration and you try and dial some of these little flavor knobs up or down and it's sort of that guess and check process that takes anywhere from like three to three to ten test batches to really get something that's dialed in 
to what you want to feature. And for the Heritage Collection, really, instead of featuring these single stream flavors, we wanted to try to encapsulate f- flavor traditions from around the world that inspired us. So with the Iki Japanese bitters, there's a ton of umami flavors in there. We get real wasabi shipped to us from the Oregon coast, which is one of the few places in the United States that has the correct climate for it to grow. So that's gets shipped to us in a cooler and on dry ice. It's, it's kind of neat. Um, and then we also have other savory things that might invoke Japan like seaweed, shiitake mushroom, green tea, sesame. Um, so that has a really good story and there's some really fun savory cocktail applications for that. I mean, just imagine a nice dirty martini with a, just that hint of spice in there. So if you're a dirty martini drinker, that's, that's a really good use case for those. And then, you know, the, the liquid gold bitters are, are also really fun because we, we wanted to pay tribute to the spice trade, which is honestly the genesis of, of where bitters and a lot of cocktail ingredients like Amari come from. Um, the spice trade brought all these amazing flavors and spices that actually have kind of health benefits to other areas of the world where people were able to pick these up. And, and that's the origins of all these uh, cool Amari um, that are out there that people are really having fun exploring in today's cocktail scene. Uh, that's uh, that medicinal tradition with Amari and bitters is uh, kind of where what we do stems from. So we wanted to go back and pay homage to some of that. So you mentioned before you, you had an MFA in poetry and you've got a background in the humanities. Just talk to me about the path to entrepreneurship working in the alcohol industry from your education and, and how that came to be. Yeah. So I got my bachelor's degree at Gettysburg College. I majored in psychology there. And then I right away just went into grad school, didn't take any time off. And I, I started pursuing my master's of fine arts degree in poetry and I really just wanted to be a poetry professor for the rest of my life. I really enjoyed teaching. So when I was there for three years, I taught English 101 classes because they needed warm bodies in the English 101 kind of um, required class trenches. And I also was able to teach poetry workshops where it wasn't like a lecture situation. It was a situation where people were actually creating their poems and, and getting active feedback from the class. And I really enjoyed that. But when you have two unrelated degrees in the humanities and then you walk out the door into Washington, D.C. and start asking for jobs, nobody really wants to give you a job. Uh, there's not a really solid case for yourself. But one thing that the humanities are good for is, you know, creative thinking and just problem solving. And so what I did is the summer after I graduated from the University of Maryland, I created a website for Embitterment Bitters. And... I used that website to get a job in search engine optimization at a marketing department for a law firm. I learned a lot of great SEO skills there. I worked in the legal marketing kind of content side of SEO for several years. I was managing at one point up to 20 freelance writers, putting out content for 20 plus websites. So that was a great case study in how to scale content, which is mm-hmm. something that has been useful since then. Um, and then when I was working for my second law firm, that was the point when uh, I went full-time and very shortly after we rebranded Embitterment to Modern Bar Cart. So I, I definitely don't regret the kind of atypical educational choices that I made. I, I think that it's that sort of unique blend of 
background that makes every company and the, the the founders just a little bit different and more interesting and and sets sets the tone of the company apart. So I think that's kind of the the background from from for where modern bar card is coming from. And it's like you've come full circle because you're back into the education business again. Exactly. And and I, I love doing that. And, and the podcast, in addition to educating and creating the type of consumer that we want to interact with, it also kind of initially served as therapy for me because in those dark days of a rebrand, which is which can be a very um, trudging and difficult process where you don't get a lot of positive feedback, you get a lot of people who are confused just doing one thing that I know that I'm really good at every week was something that was majorly helpful for me because even on days when I couldn't even identify one good thing that came out of that day, then I I could at least turn to the podcast that I was putting out that week and be like, you know what? We really nailed it with this though. So it was kind of therapy and it really did help. Um, And even though we weren't getting a lot of downloads in those early days, uh, I sort of had faith and, and now we're getting a really strong um, kind of growth curve and, and a lot of people are, are picking up on us. And, and it's a great show. I, I've listened to a couple episodes just in the interim weeks here. And, and I think you've got a very niche topic, which is what podcasts really are great about doing is finding that kind of niche and then creating, you know, hyper-engaged content around the people that would be interested in and in learning about craft cocktails and mixology. So, um, hot take here. <laughs> Tell me about your favorite drink and why. <laughs> My favorite drink is a drink called The Last Word. And first of all, I just like the name. And I feel like we should stop recording right there. <laughs> the Last Word. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Done. <laughs> uh, so, The Last Word is a cocktail that is made with gin, which is my favorite spirit. So that helps. Uh, we have a lot of great gin in the D.C. area. It's a it's a gin city. The Gin Ricky is the official cocktail of D.C. And there's a, just a lot of really amazing gin being created in this region. So gin, green chartreuse, which is uh, my favorite liquid on the planet. It's a liqueur that's made by Carthusian monks in France. And it has over 120 herbs and spices in it. The recipe is secret. And there's just uh, it's just this mystical, very cool... Um, ingredient. And then it's got maraschino liqueur, which is um, made from the pits of the marasca cherry. And it also has lime juice. So it's it's a very weird, bizarre um, set of ingredients. If you looked at them all together, you might not think that this would work. And when you mix them all up together, you mix together equal parts of each of those ingredients. So it's usually one ounce gin, one ounce green chartreuse, one ounce maraschino liqueur, and then one ounce of the lime juice. When you mix them together- wow. It's all balanced then. Yeah. So that's- Holy moly. In cocktails, that's called a perfect ratio. Mm-hmm. And and probably the most famous cocktail with a perfect ratio is the Negroni. It's uh, one to one to one um, gin to Campari to sweet vermouth. And so that's a that's a good little thing to have in your pocket, the perfect ratio. So it's it's the last word is perfect ratio cocktail, and it's got these bizarre ingredients. You stir it together, or you shake it because it's a citrus cocktail actually, and it, you pour it out of the shaker, and it's this opalescent green color. It's freaky, it's eerie, and that's due to the green chartreuse and the lime juice. And you drink it, and when you drink this cocktail, it's like seeing a color that you never knew existed. 
Uh, and that's what really intrigues me about the cocktail. It evolves on the palate. It kind of doesn't sit still. It's got this like opalescent flavor where, you know, one second you're getting a lot of the lime juice and then the next second you're getting the kind of forest floor sensation of the green chartreuse. And so it's a really fun cocktail to play around with. You can swap out a lot of other ingredients for the gin. So you could make it with mezcal instead and that's called the last of the oaxacans uh so it, it, it's a really fun cocktail to play with and i hope that um despite the cost of some of those ingredients like chartreuse and maraschino that maybe uh somebody out there gets turned onto it and decides to experiment with it talk to me about kind of you know entrepreneurship in general because i think that's always like a fascinating topic for our listeners because uh, you touched upon it early uh, just kind of your career transition coming from the humanities to uh, being an entrepreneur, but it, it seems like it's a very non-traditional kind of path to entrepreneurship. Can you talk to me about that specifically? I think for me, uh, I need to be in charge a little bit. I, I, in those desk jobs that I worked, if I did not necessarily agree with what I was being asked to do, or if someone gave me the managerial equivalent of <laughs> because I said so. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I mean, that's, I think that's really why a lot of entrepreneurs do this is because they just can't take, not that they can't take orders. It's just that they don't, they don't work best whenever they're taking orders. Right. So, so when that would happen to me, I'd turn into this really toxic presence because I'm not very good at hiding my emotions, which is great if you're trying to educate and, and entertain people like what I do now, but it's not good if, if you want to hold down a job and, and in an open office atmosphere, uh, get along well with your coworkers. So it was better for me to ha not have a desk job. And so um, this has just been a, a great opportunity for me to flex some muscles that I've had, uh, but that, that I didn't develop until I had the opportunity to really, you know, try a startup environment. I think there's, if, if I had to give advice to people who are considering whether to do a startup, I'd say a couple things. I'd say probably evaluate your pain tolerance and evaluate your relationship to risk. Uh, if you can't handle at least a, a moderate amount of risk, then you're probably not going to really enjoy the startup game. And when it comes to pain tolerance, what I mean there is um, there's the way that I look at the startup grind, at least in the early phases, is like the opening chase scene in the movie Casino Royale with uh, Daniel Craig. And in this scene, he's chasing a guy through a construction site in Madagascar. And this guy is just a parkour master. He is doing flips and just getting around these obstacles like it's nothing. And Daniel Craig is a bit more, he's a bit more of a bruiser. He's like not as agile. And so he's keeping up. And, and there's this one point where the person who's running from James Bond just vaults over this obstacle. And a second later, you just see Daniel Craig just literally run through the drywall. And so he got to the same place. Yeah. It just hurt a lot more. And so when I look at my business doing business moves mm -hmm. that other businesses do, like launching a product, for example, when I need to launch a product, I get that product out there. It just hurts because I can't throw money at it. I just yeah. have to throw sheer force of will and hours and sweat equity at it. So um, if, if, if you don't like that feeling, then... Um, you know, I'd say maybe your sensitivity to pain isn't um, necessarily cut out for the startup game. Um, but the nice thing is I, I feel like we're, we're starting to turn the page and, and not have to uh, run through all of those walls anymore, which is nice. Well, that's so, so great. Thanks so much for the conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. Eric Koslick, 
How can they get in touch with you? You can go to modernbarcart.com. And you can also follow us at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram. You can subscribe to the Modern Bar Cart podcast anywhere you go to download podcasts. You can find more about me at erickoslick.com. You can check out the new tasting journal at cocktailtastingjournal.com. And I think that about uh, exhausts the number of places where you can learn about our company. All right. Cheers. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode, and thanks for listening.